Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 11th, 2017. This is episode 2082 of the Survival Podcast, and yes, it is that day, September the 11th. We will be talking about that a little bit on today's show. I've actually got a lot of stuff to talk about today, and it's going to be a little bit different for a listener feedback show. No real direct listener feedback. This is all stuff going on. And um, stuff I'm interacting with people on Facebook with, things that I got going on here, things I think you might want to know about. A little bit different of a show. Maybe it's good that we have a kind of a little bit of a change up right about now. Uh, just keep things fresh. And uh, heading into my well deserved vacation next week. I will be gone Thursday through Friday. I already have all the rewinds set up and done for you. I actually did them over the weekend. I still got to get them posted to the blog, but the shows have been done. The new material's been done and stuff like that. And I'll even tell you a little bit about some you know, adjustments to my vacation that probably weren't necessary. Um, and I'll talk about that when I get into a segment on the storm, of course, Hurricane Irma. So here's what we got today. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the workshop that's coming up. I think it'll be something that you guys might enjoy even if you're not coming. I didn't know what we're going to be doing because we will once again be filming everything. And those of you that are MSB members will have access to all the videos. So, you know, when you hear something like, oh, I'd really like to see that, but I can't come. Yeah, you'll be able to if you're an MSB member. Um, Grant Schultz needs our support for Versaland Farm, which is his farm, because Government. It'll make sense when I play part of Grant's video message for you today and tell you how you can help. Uh, the 9-11 conspiracy theory. Yep, we'll talk about that. Explained in five minutes. Uh, it's a pretty concise little video put together by Anonymous that when I say, well, I, I don't completely believe the official narrative, I think this video does a pretty good job of explaining why, even though I'll be playing the audio-only version of it for you, you might lose a little bit here and there, but overall, like you kind of get the point that something stinks in Denmark and it probably ain't fish. Next up, uh, Houston City Councilman says what I've been saying for years. The Red Cross sucks. He refers to them as the Red Lost. I'll let him speak for himself when that comes up. Got some information coming, coming for you. Uh, announcement I put out today about Crypto Gulch. What is Crypto Gulch and why should you care? I'll tell you all about it when we get to it. And I have my thoughts on Hurricane Irma, the hype versus reality, and the reality is still bad and still going to be bad for some people, though nothing like what we expected. And frankly, Cuba took one on the chin for us, guys, is what, what happened, I think, more than anything else in, in the whole Irma saga. Anyway, all that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one day is the TSP Business Directory. Hey, guys, look, what a great concept. You can go advertise your business on the TSP Business Directory for as little as five bucks for every six months. Five bucks for every six months. You can advertise your business to all of the people who listen to the Survival Podcast. And if you don't have a business, or you do, but you're also looking to do business with somebody, you can go to tspbiz.com and you can search for what you're looking for and see if there's somebody in this community to do business with. And then you have the ability to leave reviews and, and tell people what they've done right and what they could do better. It's, it's just one way for our community to interact with each other at a higher level. And again, the lowest cost option is five bucks per six months. And the only reason we even did that instead of making it straight up free 
was to get rid of spammers. And as soon as we charged five bucks, all the spam went away. So that's why we do that to keep the directory spam free. So I don't spend all my days, you know, deleting spam accounts so you guys don't go there and look and see nothing but Viagra and Cialis and whatever else the hell they're spamming with today. Uh, next up today, Jam Bullion. I love Jam Bullion. You know, I talk about some of our sponsors who are really long-term sponsors because they've been, you know, we've had the show for nine years. They've been with us for eight. We started taking sponsors in our second year. So they've literally been here as long as it's been possible. But Jam Bullion, you know, they're in the silver and gold market. That's a tough business. And I think they came on board about six years ago now. Six years, they're still here. That tells you something. They like doing business with you, and they're doing a good job of doing business with you because sponsorship's a two-way street here at the Survival Podcast. It's not just do they want to stay. It's do I want to keep them. I have heard no complaints about Jam Bullion at all for five years. So the first year, had some customer service issues. And this is what I love. Michael Whitmer, who is the president of Jam Bullion, I had his direct uh, email, and I sent him those complaints. His response was, thank you. We'll fix this. And they did. That's an outstanding company to do business with. Great pricing, better than the bigger silver houses like Monix and Atmex and things like that. By the way, I heard from uh, Monix recently. They wanted to sponsor the show, and I told them, yeah, I got somebody for that. That tells you how much I love Jam Bullion. Check out Jam Bullion, and remember, they also do do a discount for you guys if you are a member of the Support Brigade on larger silver and gold buys. Check them out today again, jambullion.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was from history. We have the year of 56, and we have in this year a look at the time Roman baths, contributed by David Verne. One of the cornerstones of Roman society was the bathhouse. Most cities and every permanent military camp had at least one, and by 100 A.D., Rome had over 1,000. Baths had been around since the early Republic, but had now grown into large complexes spending one or more city blocks. Most were state-owned, all there were some that were privately owned. The entry fee was extremely cheap. On public holidays, they were often free. The Roman workday lasted from sunrise to just afternoon when it became too hot to work. And after a short nap, Romans of every class went to the baths. After leaving their belongings in a changing room, they would first enter a pool of cold water, which they believe opened up the pores. After that, they moved to a tepid pool and then to a hot pool, after which they followed the steps in reverse order. The Romans were heated through hypocost, where there was space underneath the raised floors where hot air was circulated from furnaces, from the hot rooms being directly over the furnaces. The water was heated by boilers that sat on top of the furnaces. Baths weren't the only thing people could do in the bathhouses. There were also saunas, exercise rooms, massage rooms, sitting rooms, lecture halls, gardens, food vendors, and libraries. Some people only stayed long enough to get clean, but on the other end of the spectrum, some people who stayed from opening time until they were kicked out at nightfall. Women also used the baths, and mixed bathing was not unheard of. However, but, uh, but an hour or so a day was set aside where baths were open only to women if they wanted more privacy. My take by David Verne. The baths functioned as a large community center. The Romans spent so much time bathing that it was a natural place for conversation. Since politicians went to the same baths as everyone else, it was common place to gather support for the populace uh, to complain about politicians. In the Republican era, it was common for a politician to pay a fee admission day to increase his popularity. And emperors frequently had bathhouses built to create lasting monuments. The importance of libraries in the baths shouldn't be understated because this allowed access to the books for common citizens. It seems like something we're missing. Not necessarily the bathhouses. 
But let me talk about how that actually is kind of part of what I mean. So imagine how much better our communities would be if there was a place that every day most of the people that lived around you all went to and spent time at and spent time together. Don't you, don't you think we'd have stronger communities that people would have a little bit more respect for their neighbors, etc., be a little bit more accountable in society if they all looked at each other every day? And I said, I don't know that we all need to go bathing together again, but that does have some impact on where I'm going with this. And here's what I mean. Why did people go spend money to take a bath? And the answer is because even though they had you know, fairly sophisticated for the time, plumbing to a lot of private homes, it wasn't really an easy thing to do to take a bath in your home. You didn't have a bathtub. And unless you were really wealthy, you didn't have your own little private book room. You didn't have a library. Think of all the things you didn't have that were available at these bathhouses. And one of the reasons we don't have so much community-centric village mindset anymore is because we all have everything we want. Now, I know you're thinking, well, I don't have everything I want, Jack. It's not, come on, guys, you know what I mean. When it comes right down to it, the average American has everything that they want in their life on a daily basis, at least at some level. You don't have a need to go somewhere. You know, I mean, the closest thing we have to this today is really like libraries, right? A little bit, and maker spaces. Where's it? I can go there and I have a CNC machine and a drill press and a lathe and all this other stuff, or maybe gyms. But if you even think about those things, there's a lot of people that if they really like to do woodworking, they've got a lot of that equipment in their garage or their shop, right? And you have the whole library on a Kindle today. I mean, it is the fact that we are so independent in some ways, that we're so less interdependent, that we actually are weaker as communities. And it's something to think about. I don't have a perfect answer for it, but it is something to think about as we think about how we want to live going forward in our self-organizational structures. My take by Jack Spierko. Sometimes the history stuff doesn't have to be as, as all bad, right? Okay, so with that, I want to remind you guys, if you want to support this show, one of the ways you can do that is by joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more, and you can sign up there. You can pay by cash, check, money order, silver, cryptocurrency, barter, you name it. There's probably a way you can do it. And all I'll say about that today is we're going to talk about the fall workshop. And one real big reason you might want to sign up is just to get all the videos from the fall workshop. Uh, so my main media, video guy is a guy named John Schmata. And uh, he's done a lot of great work for me as a video guy. And he is going to a family wedding as I look at a turkey pecking on my window, looking in the window at me. What, what a great business to be in. So you got your turkeys bothering you while you're on the microphone. Anyway, so, you know, I usually have Shmata and he comes and he, uh, he looks like a, looks like he could do, like if there was a, if there was a market for a Gary Vaynerchuk impersonator, John could have that job, right? Looks just like, just like a clone of Gary V. And, uh, he's got the same accent. Anyway, John can't come because he's, uh, tied up with a wedding for his family. So I reached out to a guy named Hatch, and Hatch is kind of an audio-video guy, perfect guy for it. I said, hey, look, I'll, I'll give you the, the little bit of payment that I give John, a uh, place to sleep on my floor in my garage or my, uh, in my, my office, and uh, access to my computers, and basically you video everything, dump it, and get it up on Vimeo, and you know you basically be at the workshop for nothing. He said, hell yeah, brother, I'm down. So Hatch is coming, and we will be making all the videos uh, available 
from this workshop. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about the coming workshop so that you know, you know what, what's going to be there. And I want to remind you again, it's going to go on, show, on, on sale Thursday. Now, some people, and I don't know what's wrong with them, why they get their panties in the water, he just wants to make money. He's just trying to sell us on his workshops. Listen, I, I'm not worried about selling anybody on my workshops, okay? I, I mean, the way I look at it, I put these things up for sale. In the spring, they sell out in a week. I put them up in the fall, they usually sell out in a day just because people are less busy. And I know that when I put this thing open on Thursday morning, there's going to be a flood of people that are going to hit it, and I know that it's going to sell out. I also know that it's not going to do like when we did Patrick Roman's knife thing. It's probably not going to sell out in six minutes, which means that anybody that really wants to come can come, but I don't want you to miss the opportunity if that's you. So I kind of pump these things more from a standpoint of I want you to know what's going to happen so you don't miss the opportunity rather than I want to make sure we sell our seats. Because honest to God, I wish I had you know another acre of parking available because I would instead of letting you know 40 people sign up, I would let 80 and I would still fill it. So it's just kind of the public service, I guess. Uh, to make sure you can come. But what we did this time, I sat down with my buddy David, who's going to be one of the instructors, and said, let's bounce this off each other and think about maybe how we take things up a notch. And David said, why don't you just take the best of the people you've had present in the past, or a group of the best, and let's build you know, kind of it on that core group this time. And I said, well, you'd be one. And even though she's only presented at one, Nicole Awesome Sauce, she's got to be another one. And I've invited Vin Armani, and he's spectacular, so we'll make sure Nick Ferguson's got to be in that group. John Pugliano's got to be in that group. And Patrick Rorman. And we were going to bring Michael Jordan in, and he's uh, he had just recently had surgery and stuff, and it just it, it's not a good year for him to come. So Michael Jordan wouldn't be coming, but otherwise he would. So that has this, this great core group. So here's what we're going to be doing that I think is going to be really awesome. The day one is going to be mostly focused on things that are more toward an entrepreneurial type bent. And we're going to end that day with a panel of myself, Vin Armani, David Siegler, uh, Nicole Sauce, and John Pugliano on entrepreneurship. Day two, we're going to be themed way into the food production side of things. And we're going to end with a panel discussion by myself, Nick Ferguson, and David Siegler on high-production food systems, how to get the most out of the smallest amount of things. And the day three panel, uh, we're going to have all the instructors up for like a, 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 you know, like a full panel discussion. Audience can ask us anything. And on these panels, while it will be kind of a Q&A thing with the audience, I'm going to have some talking points created to get things going because I find that when you do that with a panel discussion, you get a lot more audience interaction than just saying, okay, What do you guys want to know? So we're going to have some structured things, and I have some kind of creative ways I'm going to make the panel members mentally stretch. Now, personally, I think that we charge for, for three days with meals, a place to stay, and an incredible experience, 500 bucks. And if all we did was hang out and feed y'all, it would almost be worth 500 bucks. I think these three panels would be worth 500 bucks, and all the other stuff is just additional. So here's what we're going to be doing additionally. So the, the, the schedule's not 100% set in stone, but it's probably going to run something like this. On Thursday, 
which is the first full day of the workshop. We're going to lead off with automation for the home and homestead with David Siegler, which even though, yeah, it might involve some you know permaculture-type stuff that could be automated, it's really automation as a whole, which actually is something a lot of people could use to kind of springboard a business. We're going to talk about then uh, WordPress sites for small businesses with Nicole Sauce. And then Vin Armani is going to do a presentation he's never done publicly before called Prepping for Crypto Savagery, which is going to be on how being preparedness-minded, modern survivalist makes you so in, in the right place to take most advantage of the coming shifts that we see as the crypto savagery shifts. And that's not all cryptocurrency, by the way. Uh, then we'll have John Pugliano up with Stupid Simple Facts to Building Wealth. So I might actually move that to day three, the way this is working out. I haven't decided yet. Uh, then we're going to have that panel on entrepreneurship with uh, Nicole Sauce, Jack Spierko, David Siegler, John Pugliano, and Vin Armani. And Patrick will be running from five to seven, and throughout the day during breaks, a knife-building workshop. So I think it's going to be limited to eight people, and there'll be an additional charge for that, for materials and all with Patrick that can build a knife a custom world-class knife with Patrick Rohrman over those three days. Um, and that'll primarily be done most of that time between uh, five and seven before dinner. Um, then on Friday, we're going to have extreme function stacking food production with Nick Ferguson. You heard about that somewhat, what that's about last week when Nick was on. Extreme high production food system with David Siegler. And then maybe something on Mead. Maybe something else. Maybe that spot gets moved around because Michael's not going to be here. And then on Friday after lunch, we're going to do a property walk. I'm going to walk the property and talk about mostly because coming plans for the property, things that we're going to be doing and explaining things and answering y'all's questions. And we're going to have then that panel discussion on high production food systems with David Siegler, Nick Ferguson, and myself. Saturday, we're going to then have a presentation that I'm really looking forward to by Nicole Sauce called Tapping into the Value You Have. Really you know, coming off of the side hustle angle, like instead of trying to get a second job or try to save an extra dollar, what are the value you have and how do you define that in a way that you can create some sort of an entrepreneurial opportunity for yourself? Uh, then Nick Ferguson will be doing a uh, presentation after that on making first aid salve which is great as a skill set. You'll be able to make it with him. Uh, he's actually saying if you bring a little bit of cash, it won't cost much. Some people, you can actually make some, take some, that type of thing. i got more more information coming from him on that soon uh, that will go out to the people that actually sign up to come. And then Vin Armani's going to do a uh, one-hour presentation on controlling your own cryptocurrency keys. So you always hear people like Brandon Todd say, well, you need to control your own keys. You need to have your own keys. You need to have, you know, don't rely, especially large amounts, don't rely on a wallet or a service. You know, keep complete control over it. Well, how do you actually do that? Vin's going to teach you how to do that. After lunch that day, we're going to have a presentation from John Pugliano on building a lifestyle business. And then we're going to have the panel discussion, Ask Us Anything, with all instructors. <laughs> Three days, 500 bucks, and you get fed to the gills. Barter blanket, special unannounced surprises, mead tastings, beer tastings. I I just say, where else can you do that, especially with people like the people you'll be surrounded with? When I have these workshops, a lot of times when I'll do kind of the everybody introduce themselves in the beginning, I'll be like, who has been to one of these workshops more than four times and half the hands go up? There's a reason. 
guys, if you can make one, this is going to be one to make. And I'm going to tell you, um, Dorothy and I have been talking a lot, and we really think we're going to go to the once-a-year model. The spring workshops, we're so busy, people are so busy. Uh, this time around, you know, the, the worst of the worst happened. Dorothy's father passed away in the middle of, of one. I mean, but, you know, that kind of, we can't let that taint the whole thing. But when we look at it as a whole, like the concept of doing one, making it rock star level, doing everything right, and doing it at the time of year, you know, going, because this is going to be the week of November 8th through 12th is the, the full time we have the property open. 9th through 11th is the actual workshop dates. Uh, you know, you're a couple weeks out from Thanksgiving. People are coasting into the end of the year. It's just an easier time to do it. So if you want to come, you know, it may, it, I'm not going to say we won't do a spring one. We're probably not going to, and it probably will be another year before you get a chance. So be ready Thursday morning, 9 p.m., okay, uh, Central Standard Time. Log into your MSB. I mean, I'll post about it, but you just all you got to do is log into your MSB. I'm going to upload the, it'll be right on the front page. It'll be big, giant, red, bold. Go here to sign up. And please come. And I would like you to do this for me already, too. For these panel discussions, if you're coming especially, but anybody's welcome to, um, send me topics of discussion or questions for the entrepreneurship one, High Production Foods uh, System one, and for the Ask Us Anything based on the instructors that are going to be here. And I'm not saying they're all going to get worked in, but if we end, you know, we'll have this like wild card list. And if we need to spur things, we'll go to it. Or maybe I'll make some of the talking, initial talking points about it. Anyway, it's going to be great. I, I do hope to see, you know, a lot of old faces, but I hope to meet some new folks here for that as well. Um, next up, now, From a really great topic of discussion and kind of like almost feeling a little bit guilty because I can do almost anything I want here at Nine Mile Farm. Short of cooking meth, which I have no interest in doing or something like that, um, no one will bother me. I'm in an unincorporated part of Tarrant County. Uh, city and town ordinances do not apply to me. And Tarrant County, Texas... I think as far as the, go the government can be, knows their place as government better than most. They have no interest in basically trying to tell other people how to live. And if, if people are out in the county, as we call it, they don't go around telling you, well, you can't do this, or you need a permit for that or whatever. So we run our duck farm. Uh, we run these events. Uh, we have our little orchards. We have our little pond that might be a complete failure that I might have to give up on at some point. You know, I build all my water gardens. I have people come here for big big things and little things. Ran an internship program at one point, had somebody live here with me for seven months as an intern, and didn't hear the square root of the word boo from the state. I wish that was the same for everybody. Grant Schultz has a farm he calls Versal Land Farm in Iowa. Iowa. Iowa City, Iowa. I mean, you would think that if all the places in the world where a person could farm and be left alone, Iowa would be that place. Grant has been on the show at least two, maybe three times. He's an incredible guy. He's, he's a student of Mark Shepard's. He's done incredible things to restore the landscaping on the farm that he's working uh, with key line design. Uh, he's run workshops. He's been a pioneer on the use of uh, GPS technology to install key line systems. Uh, he's helped hundreds, if not thousands, of people get their own start into this world. 
And he's built Versaland into a true uh, multi, you know, multi uh, business unit opportunity, and gives people the opportunity to come there and farm. In a lot of ways, he he's done what I tried to do with with Perma Ethos far better than I ever could have done because I wasn't there to do it. And I've been so encouraged by his work. So you know what had to happen. The Department of Making You Sad has shown up at Versaland. And uh, let me play this. The video is actually like 26 minutes long. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can hear the whole thing. I'm just going to play the first few minutes of it to you. And I'm going to come back with some thoughts on how you can help and how to do it professionally, uh, not in a way that will actually make things work worse. Uh, here you go. Let's, uh, let's hear from Grant now. Hey everyone, my name is Grant Schultz. I farm at Versaland, which is 143 acres of diverse organic crops in Iowa City, Iowa. Raise everything from apples and chestnuts to pastured livestock. At the present moment, I'm currently under assault by the Johnson County, Iowa Planning and Zoning Department. In the last year, they've banned retail orchards, which means crops like this can't be harvested in a UPIC operation with any sort of agritourism or, or value-added products on hand. Um, I can't have any farm worker housing outside of a tight June 1 to September 15th uh, window, and that has to be applied for every year, which means when all these crops are ripe, I can't have any farm workers living on site for, uh, for harvest help. When it's planting season, come uh, April and May for vegetable crops, I can't have any interns, can't have any employees living on site. Um, for a county that's supposedly so progressive, uh, all their policies are just anti-agriculture, anti-diversity, anti-anything uh, for that matter. And furthermore, uh, recently I have some designs to put in some farm ponds for aquaculture, for fishing on site. And uh, staff has stated that unless I have AR zoning, um, I can't sell worms for people to fish on my Iowa farm. It's pretty crazy. Um, they're saying that aquaculture is not agriculture. Oof. So all these things are, are happening right now. And I have filed an application, which cost me almost $2,000 in application fees alone, to file for 62 acres to go from A to AR. Now, after doing all that, staff has made a recommendation for denial. So uh, a lot of stuff's happening right now. Um, one of the best examples of diverse agriculture in Iowa that I know of is, is really in jeopardy because, uh, you know, if I can't farm my farm, if I don't have a right to farm my farm, I'm out of business. So I'd ask you to watch the rest of this video to have a more in-depth understanding of the situation, and I really do need your help. So if you can go to versaland.com slash support, we've got ways for you to you know, help and share and, and, and lobby these people, the Johnson County Board of Supervisors that have the sole power to determine, do I have the power or do I have the ability to, to farm versatile land as it, as it needs to be? So I need your help. Please watch the rest of the video. Share it far and wide. Thank you. Okay, so I have a link in the show notes where you can watch the whole video and you can find out the names of the people uh, and the contact information for the officials that are making this decision. I'd like to say there's probably three different classifications geography-wise of people listening to this right now. There are people that are geographically close enough to the area. It's probably the biggest minority, but there are some that, that, that you really, it is local politics to you. If that's you, you absolutely please need to contact these people because it will mean more coming from for you than from everybody else. But I want them to hear from everybody else too. Then there are people that are in the general vicinity and would see the area as a place you might go from time to time, especially to an awesome place like Versaland Farm where you would be there spending your money in their local economy, and they should know that you take a poor 
view of what they're doing. And then there's everybody else. And I think what we need to understand is one of the things that I've I've tried to explain to you guys about politicians over the years is this sounds funny because they look stupid all the time, okay? But what they really don't want to do is to look stupid. And I don't mean they don't want to look stupid to the informed people because they have to look stupid to the informed people. They don't want to look stupid to the average person, and they don't want to feel like they look stupid to the average person. So this this group of people pride themselves on being progressive and they mean that from a standpoint of diversity and taking care of people and helping people and providing opportunities from people and all the things progressivism always fails to deliver but yet that's what they're marketing themselves as and here they are stepping on the throat of a guy that's improving the local economy providing people with places to live providing people with opportunities providing people with chemical free foods etc 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 and They need to have that pointed out. You, you, you guys say that you're concerned about sustainability. This is a person engaged in one of the most sustainable farms in America. You say you're concerned about access to housing for people, and this is a man creating access to housing for anybody who wants to take the opportunity to go there and learn a trade and work and become possibly a partner. You say you're concerned about all these things, yet here you are stepping on the throat of a man who's trying to do all the things you say that you're concerned about, and you pride yourself supposedly on being consistency, uh, being consistent with your, your your politics. But the only thing that I see consistent here is that you're stepping on somebody's throat. Maybe stepping on the throat is not the right words to use. Be diplomatic. Be professional. Call or write but do one or the other for all of these people on this list and say, hey, I am paying attention, and this reflects poorly on your claim that you care about these issues. Watch the whole video first. It'll give you more things that you can bring up so that not everybody's email or call sounds the same. I'll tell you something else you'll learn about this video. Um, the government themselves have a concept farm that looks like a clone of Grant's farm that they want to build in the area. Now, they actually haven't done anything yet. It's been a concept for a long time, but supposedly they're going to do it. And, I mean, it's almost a verbatim clone of what Grant's doing. Well, how can they do it if Grant can't do it? Well, because they're the government and they're exempt from their own regulations. It almost seems to me, in a way, like they don't like the fact that his is there. And they want theirs to be the showcase. I don't know. And that's pretty egotistical, arrogant, and stupid, if you ask me. But go watch the whole video. If there is a man out there worthy of the support of this community in the world of sustainable agriculture that also needs it right now, it is Grant Schultz. Grant Schultz impressed me in such a way at Permaculture Voices 2 when I was out there, and the place was lousy with the people in permaculture that I call purple breathers. And he was doing a, uh, a, a session uh, in conjunction with Peter. Uh, I can't think of his last name now. I want to say Peter Allen, but I'm not sure that's not right. But they're friends. They both worked together on Mark's Farm, and then they went to do their own thing. And they were talking about how to acquire land as a young person trying to get started in farming. And there were all these young people. And they were excited because they thought maybe Grant and Peter had some super secret way that you could get, you know, Daddy to give you a farm or Obama to give you a farm or whatever. And basically he said, it's hard work. Grant said, I bought a FEMA trailer and I lived in a FEMA trailer for years on my property before I could afford to, to build a better place to live. And if you want it, that's what it takes. 
And they were able to reach those young people better than me because those young people knew what to expect from me. They didn't know what to expect from people like Grant and Peter. And it's, it's not just that piece of it, that social component of it. It's he did the work. He has thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars sunk into this property with a buy option on it. It's a lease-to-buy option. He has a cr- tremendous amount of sunken capital doing things the right way and proving that they work, harming no one, And government comes along and says, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. By the way, we know you could have done all those things when you started this. We've just changed our minds. In a word, bullshit. Absolute bullshit. You can help by contacting these people, and you can help by donating to their legal defense fund. I'm going to ask you that you consider doing both today. Again, I'll have a link where you can go and uh, learn more about that in the show notes. But honestly, all you have to do is just go to versaland.com, V-E-R-S-A-L-A-N-D.com, and you can see Grant's full video right there, and you can get the contact information and pretty picture uh, of all of these people, these supervisors, who have decided that they don't like what Grant's doing and want to prevent him from doing it. In spite of the fact that he's harmed no one, he's taken a degraded piece of land and turned it into a damn near oasis. He's helping people find their feet, get jobs, develop economic... I mean, he's doing all the things that these type of people always say they want to see done. But when somebody does it, you know what happens. Boot on the throat. So please, I'm asking you as a personal favor, uh, get out and do what you can to help Grant Schultz at Versa Land Farm. Next up... um, I've taken heat over the years uh, from both sides of this issue. And this issue, of course, being this day, 9-11. At one time, I had what I would call a reasonable amount of skepticism that some of the story might not be true. But overall, I pretty much accepted the main narrative of 9-11. That was before I even started the show. Uh, That began to break down for me. But I also think that some of the conspiracy theorists, things like Larry Silverstein gave the order to blow up World Trade Seven, World Trade Center 7, and you go to those extremes, I just think, what world do you live in? You do have the tinfoil wrap too tied around your head. So, of course, in the world of bifurcation, which is the world we live in in America, where everybody is part of a dichotomy, You have people that either 100% believe the mainstream narrative of 9-11 or they seem to believe every conspiracy theory out there. And if you take anything other than one of those extreme positions, not one side, but both sides seems to attack you. Um, The people that believe every single bit of conspiracy about 9-11, I don't have a lot to say to. Those are usually people that believe every conspiracy that they've ever heard. I do believe the silent majority of people in America are like me. They are the people that know something's not right. They just know something that we've been told is a lie, and how much, I'm not sure, but probably more than even I think. And then there's the other large group are the people that believe, hey, if you question this, you're crazy. That's the main, if you're one of those people, you're the main people I'm playing this for today. This is about a five-minute video by Anonymous that summarizes all the things that you have to believe if you believe 100% 
and what the government's told you and what MSN has told you or MSN has told you about 9/11. Here we go. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 men armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world using a satellite phone and a laptop directed the most sophisticated penetration of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. Overpowering the passengers and the military combat trained pilots on four commercial aircraft before flying those planes wildly off course for over an hour without being molested by a single fighter interceptor. These 19 hijackers, devout religious fundamentalists who like to drink alcohol, snort cocaine and live with pink-haired strippers, managed to knock down three buildings with two planes in New York. While in Washington, a pilot who couldn't handle a single-engine Cessna was able to fly a 757 in an 8,000-foot descending 270-degree corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground. Hitting the Pentagon in the budget analyst office where DOD staffers were working on the mystery of the 2.3 trillion dollars that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had announced missing from the Pentagon's coffers in a press conference the day before on September 10th, 2001. Luckily, the news anchors knew who did it within minutes. Osama bin Laden. The pundits knew within hours. Osama bin Laden. The administration knew within the day. Terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And the evidence literally fell into the FBI's lap. That a hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. But for some reason, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists demanded an investigation into the greatest attack on American soil in history. That investigation was delayed, underfunded, set up to fail, a conflict of interest, and a cover-up from start to finish. It was based on testimony extracted through torture, the records of which were destroyed. It failed to mention the existence of WTC-7, Able Danger, P-TECH, Sibel Edmonds, OBL and the CIA, and the drills of hijacked aircraft being flown into buildings that were being simulated at the precise same time that those events were actually happening. It was lied to by the Pentagon, the CIA, the Bush administration, and as for Bush and Cheney, well, no one knows what they told it because they testified in secret, off the record, not under oath, and behind closed doors. It didn't bother to look at who funded the attacks because that question is ultimately of little practical significance. Still, the 9-11 Commission did brilliantly answering all of the questions the public had, except most of the victim's family members' questions, and pinned blame on all the people responsible, although no one so much as lost their job, determining the attacks were failure of imagination. Because nobody in our government, at least, and I don't think the prior government that could envision flying airplanes in the buildings. Except the Pentagon, FEMA, NORAD, and the NRO. The DIA destroyed 2.5 terabytes of data on Able Danger, but that's okay because it probably wasn't important. The SEC destroyed their records on the investigation into the insider trading before the attacks, but that's okay because destroying the records of the largest investigation in SEC history is just part of routine record keeping. NIST has classified the data that they used for their model of WTC-7's collapse, but that's okay because knowing how they made their model of the collapse would jeopardize public safety. The FBI has argued that all material related to their investigation of 9-11 should be kept secret from the public, but that's okay because the FBI probably has nothing to hide. This man never existed, nor is anything he had to say worthy of your attention, and if you say otherwise, you are a paranoid conspiracy theorist and deserve to be shunned by all of humanity. Likewise him, 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 and her, and her, and her, and him. Osama bin Laden lived in a cave fortress in the hills of Afghanistan, but somehow got away. Then he was hiding out in Tora Bora, but somehow got away. Then he lived in Abbottabad for years, taunting the most comprehensive intelligence dragnet employing the most sophisticated technology in the history of the world for a decade, releasing video after video with complete impunity and getting younger and younger as he did so, before finally being found in a daring SEAL team raid which wasn't recorded on video, in which he didn't resist or use his wife as a human shield, and in which these crack special forces operatives panicked and killed this unarmed man, supposedly the best source of intelligence about those dastardly terrorists on the entire planet. Then they dumped his body in the ocean before telling anyone about it. 
Then a couple dozen of that team's members died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. This is the story of 9-11, brought to you by the media, which told you the hard truths about... His head could be seen to move violently forward. And... They took the babies out of incubators. And... Mobile production facilities. And... The rescue of Jessica Lynch. If you have any questions about this story, you are a batshit, paranoid, tinfoil, dog-abusing baby hater, and will be reviled by everyone. If you love your country and or freedom, happiness, rainbows, rock and roll, puppy dogs, apple pie, and your grandma... You will never, ever express doubts about any part of this story to anyone. Ever. This has been a public service announcement by the friends of the FBI, CIA, NSA, DIA, SEC, MSM, White House, NIST, and the 9-11 Commission. Because ignorance is strength. So, um, totally unrelated to this. Um, things happen, and I want to make corrections as quickly as possible, and seldom do I get to make a correction in the same show that I've made the error. Uh, I just heard from Michael Jordan, and uh, he's got some things worked out, and I feel confident that he's not putting himself in hard way just to come. And he will be here for the workshop, and uh, he will be making meat, and he will be part of that lineup that I gave you. Um, another thing happened while I was listening to that. I got over to Facebook where I found it and where I posted it today, to my personal page, the TSP forum page, and the TSP you know official business page, which is the one that has over a hundred thousand subscribers. Anyway, some uh, some guy named David made a comment on it that I think really sums up the point of the video very well. I want you to think about the end of that video, where like if if you don't completely accept one hundred percent the official narrative, even with all this stuff. Then you are, you know, a tinfoil hat wearing, baby hating, dog kicking, you know, like you're just, you're just shit. If you don't, be, if you don't believe a hundred percent what the government that always lies to you told you about this, in spite of all these irregularities, this is what this guy said. He said it happened. Grow up. Get over it. Get a job. It happened, grow up, get over it, get a job. Let's talk about growing up for a minute here to put this in perspective to why this is important. A child born on that day is 16 years old today. A child that was three years old, who's 19, somewhere right now, a child that was three years old on that day, had to grow up and get a job and is 19 today, has gotten a job. They're wearing fatigues. And they're somewhere in the Middle East right now getting shot at. Maybe they should grow up, get over it, get a job. My response to that, and you guys know how I feel about the word retarded, was, there it is, the most retarded comment we will see this week, and it is only Monday. Grow up, get over it, get a job. Grow up, get over it, get a job. I looked at this dude's page, by the way, and... He had a very interesting post on his page. I, I found it so ironic given that comment that he had this posted. Most people don't really want the truth. They just want constant reassurance that what they believe is the truth. Man, that sounds like you, right? Now, here's kind of my take on this, to be a little bit fair to this person making this statement. 
there are people that this is like their whole life. This is all they do. They're fighting for 9-11 truth, and they think that they're going to change something by doing so. Like eventually Bush will answer for his crimes or something like that. Um, that isn't going to happen. There is never going to be an admission by our government that they lied about anything to do with 9-11, which I think if you're a thinking person, just on the things you... Now, you notice what you didn't hear in this video? Jet fuel burns at 1,500 degrees and steel melts at 2,700 degrees. You didn't hear that, did you? You didn't hear anything about controlled demolitions. You just heard some basic facts that don't add up. I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that, that, that I really have a problem with in, in, in this whole topic. And I'll tell you why I think it's important, even though we're not really going to change anything directly in relation to it. Number one, I find it absolutely reprehensible that our president and vice president at the time, when they testified about the events that occurred on 9-11, did so not under oath, with no record, and in secret, with no transcript. And I'm not going to play it for you today. You know what? I am going to play it for you today. Some of you have never heard it. I want to play for you George Bush when he was asked about the fact that he was going to be testifying, you know, not under oath, with no transcript, only with the vice president at the same time, only once, uh, and in secret. And I want you to think if you're old enough to have had kids yet or had to deal with kids and you've ever found something like a broken window or something you know the kid did and you ask the kid about it, and there's a certain way that they act when they know that you know, but they think they can get away with it. And I want you to tell me that you don't hear that in the President of the United States voice when he's asked this question right here. The Bush administration will allow National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice to testify publicly before the 9-11 Commission. For President Bush, it was a dramatic reversal. I've ordered this level of cooperation because... I consider it necessary to gaining a complete picture of the month. And even the president and vice president agreed to meet with the commission, but with a catch. They insisted on meeting together behind closed doors and not under oath. President, why are you and the vice president insisting on appearing together before the 9-11 commission? Because the 9-11 commission, commission wants to ask us questions. That's why we're meeting, and I look forward to meeting with them and answering their questions. Uh, why you're appearing together rather than separately, which was their request. Because it's a good chance for both of us to answer questions that the 9-11 Commission is uh, looking forward to asking us, and I'm looking forward to answering them. Let's see. We have to have one story, so I'll say part, and if I get it wrong, hedge a little bit and give me the next. I want to thank the chairman and vice chairman for giving us a chance to share views on, a, on, on, on different subjects and uh, they had a lot of good questions and uh, I was I'm glad I did it I'm glad I took the time what topic did the commissioners want to spend most of the time on uh, I, I really I, probably best that I not go into the details of the conversation the president and vice president of the United States don't you think they should be able to stand up and 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 speak their own words they should go under oath they should be yeah, in public don't you think that the families deserve to have a transcript or to be able to see what you Adam, said? Adam, you asked me that question yesterday. I got the today. same answer, yeah. Now, in all of that, 
It was this piece right here in the middle that I'm going to play again that will forever live in my mind with how critical it is and how right I am to pull this out. And first thing I want to tell you is this is actually very hard to find. The video that I found on this is the only one that I found with this footage in it, and I think it has been, you know, as big a deal as it was, it's it's been taken down or, you know, obscured or something by the powers that be. Because you would think that a video like this would be everywhere. It doesn't even have that many views considering how old it is. Uh, and you, <clears throat> to find this, you have to know to look for it. It just so happened that somewhere along the way in my investigation of this, I came across this video at one point, and I've used it to make a point <clears throat> many times. And one time was with my wife. <clears throat> and I explained this to my wife, and this is you know going back to where she still had her you know day job type thing. And, of course, I'm the crazy survivalist, and I'm always believing in some ulterior motive to everything. And why can't you just live the way everybody else does? And I said, I want you to listen to this and imagine that it, and our son Matthew was still pretty young yet, that it's our son Matthew, and he, he broke a window with a baseball, and we asked him about it. We know he did it, and he answers us in this manner. And I watched her as she watched this video. And I'm going to play this one part again, and I'm going to come back and tell you what I saw in her face as she heard this answer. President, why are you and the vice president insisting on appearing together before the 9-11 commission? Because the 9-11 commission, commission wants to ask us questions. That's why we're meeting, and I look forward to meeting with them and answering their questions. Uh, why you're appearing together rather than separately, which was their request? Because it's a good chance for both of us to answer questions that the 9-11 commission is uh, looking forward to asking us, and I'm looking forward to answering them. The the look that I saw was horror. I, I recognize things in people's faces, and especially my wife's, and the look I saw was horror because it all hit her. We're not being told the truth about this. That's not an answer given by a man being honest. That is an answer given by a 12-year-old kid who has been caught in a lie. Uh, uh, well, because, um, uh, 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 see, uh, they're, uh, they're looking forward to asking us questions, and I am looking forward to answering them. That's not the question. The question is, why the hell are you doing it with no transcript, not under oath, in secret, and only with the vice president sitting on your hand? Well, because I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting with them and answering questions that they're looking forward to asking, and we are looking forward to answering you wouldn't accept that answer from your child. And you should. So you shouldn't accept that answer from your president. Another thing that I've always found to be dramatically disturbing without getting into can an airplane bring a building down is the fact that in the investigation, the source of the funding for the largest terroristic crime that ever occurred on U.S. soil and launched our country into, at this point, 16 years of war with two nations, and actually many other nations, and has completely disrupted the Middle East of the world. The funding for that action that caused all of this was deemed to not be significantly, significant, not be worth you know, checking out. It's not, it's not really material to the, to the situation. Look, if, <clears throat> if there was a guy named Tom... And Tom shot you in the head. And they went after Tom. Tom holed up in a building. 
and committed suicide by cop because he wasn't going to surrender. They would say, well, Tom clearly shot you in the head, and he's guilty, and he's dead, and that's good. Okay, There would still be an investigation. And if it was in that investigation was determined that you and I had a big problem with each other, and I was a person of means, and at some point in between here and there, I'd given Tom some money, you can bet that that investigation would, have, would not have ended with, well, here's the facts of what happened. He shot Tom in the head. Tom, Tom shot him in the head. He's dead. He's in the ground. Tom's dead. He's in the ground. It's over. It's done. The, the most rookie beat cop would have said, hey, uh, we need to talk to this Spearco guy who may have provided funding for this. But we're going to launch a multi-decade crusade of war. And the source of the funds is immaterial. Well, let's take all the conspiracy theories away for a minute. And let's ask ourselves why somebody might do that, even if the basic narrative is true. What if the money came from Saudi Arabia, where most of the supposed hijackers came from? How do you get the United States to want to go to war with Afghanistan or Iraq if the money came from our ally, Saudi Arabia? Which is where the money came from. Do, do, do you start to see how there's lies in this no matter how you look at it? There's no other, there's no other logical, rational explanation for all of the issues that crop up when you take a logical analysis of the events that occurred 16 years ago today, other than we're being lied to. And this is why this is important. This is why the guy that made the retarded comment, it happened, get over it, grow up, and get a job, is just so ridiculous. Everything this nation is talked into, supporting, allowing, permitting, backing, funding, etc., is driven by getting enough of the people in this country to believe something. If you didn't get the majority of people in America to believe that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and was sympathetic to Al-Qaeda, there could have been no invasion of Iraq. The will of the American people would not have been sufficient to allow our government to do it. Because as much as they do whatever the hell they want, there are still some limits on that. And one is, what is the overriding will of the American people? How in the hell do you get people to tolerate 17 years of war with two nations where the people that when we went to war that ran those nations haven't run those nations for 15, 14 to 15 years, depending on which one you're talking about? Like completely zero control, gone, dead. And the guy that supposedly did it, the, the six foot two inch Arab on dialysis living in a cave using a laptop and a satellite phone has been dead for years and we're still fighting this war. Wars. And talking about new wars and more wars and more bombs and do we need more troops and do we, how do you get that without the consent of the people in a republic? Even the, the, a republic is screwed up as ours is. And the answer is you don't. So the reason that it's important what you believe about this, and you don't just believe the lie, is it prevents you from lending your consent to this stuff. I'll tell you what else it does. It makes you question everything. For many people, the reason 9-11 as a conspiracy, if you want to call it that, is so significant, is even the people that are more like me, 
I don't necessarily think they put thermite in World Trade Center 7 and blew it up. And I certainly don't think that Larry Silverstein, had the, who's the guy that owned the building, had the authority. Well, I said pull it. and Come on. Just, just nonsense. But people that are generally just like, there's something here. Some of this doesn't add up. Some of that we have been lied to about. They said that there's no way we could have conceived of this, but they were running training exercises of the same event on the day that it happened. And it just keeps coming that we're being lied to when they when they when they sit back and they say, "I know people that died that day. I knew people that suffered that day. I watched that day. I shed tears with my fellow Americans that day, and they lied to us. The most important thing is they say, "I don't believe them anymore. I don't believe them anymore, and that's incredibly important that we begin to think that way. Nothing the government or the mainstream media tells us should simply be believed out of hand. It shouldn't necessarily be like everything they say is a lie, because not everything they say is a lie. But it should be, okay, we've been told this. Now we must find evidence to support or refute it. That is the key with understanding 9-11. As a seminal moment, it must call upon you. And any time that you're going to believe or buy into something with your emotion and be willing to say or do or give up something that you normally wouldn't, to say, well, before I make something that's this big a decision in my life, before I give my consent to something, before I give my backing to something, before I'm willing to raise the hackles on my neck and be angry about something, I must first determine whether or not it's actually true and is it true in the context in which I've been told. And if you think that makes somebody a conspiracy theorist, then call me a conspiracy theorist. I don't use that term for myself, but go ahead. If that's what you think a conspiracy theorist is, fine. Fine. Because I think anything short of requiring evidence before action is idiocy. That's all I'll say on this subject for today, and let's move on. But speaking of government and idiocy, in one sentence is not difficult to do, but every once in a while, someone in the government says something that really makes a lot of sense, and sometimes they say it about a private organization, and that's the person that's idiot, idiot, you know, behaving like an idiot or acting like with through idiocy. Well, I don't know about idiocy here, but what I what I do see here is either direct gross incompetence and negligence. Or simply people running a giant business for their own benefit and using the nonprofit and emotions of the world to collect money. And that would be, of course, the Red Cross. I'd like to uh, play a little snippet of video for you right now um, from a Houston uh, city councilman. And um, his name is, I'm trying to find it. They're not real big on giving this guy's name. Uh, Dave Martin. And this is what Dave Martin has to say about the Red Cross in Houston if you're thinking about a place to donate your money. Now, my last rant will be on the Red Lost. I'm sorry, the Red Cross. Because the Red Cross, if anybody wants to donate to the Red Cross, please call me. I beg you not to send them a penny. They are the most inept, unorganized organization that I've ever experienced. I've been in Kingwood fighting this thing, and we have not seen one person, not a single person from the Red Lost. Yet, every time I turn on the TV, they're receiving multi, multi hundreds of millions of dollars. What are you guys doing with it? 
How many contractors you're helping us with? So to this day, many days after the hurricane hit, I have not seen a single person in Kingwood or in Clear Lake that's a representative of the Red Cross. You know who opened our shelters? We did. You know who sent water and supplies? We did. People didn't have cots. We got them blankets. We didn't get a darn thing from the Red Cross. So if anybody wants to send them money, don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. Send it to other causes. Thank you, Mayor. Thanks. Thanks, Councilman Martin. Uh, Councilman McCubosh? Guys, I wholeheartedly agree. But let me add to it with something even more disgusting as far as I'm concerned because it's a, a concrete example. Now, this was on America Now. It made its rounds on Facebook, uh, written by Brendan Kelly. Red Cross turns away woman's donation of 400 burgers. A woman was shocked by the response of a Red Cross after she brought 400 burgers to feed hungry evacuees of Hurricane Harvey. More than a million people have been dis displaced by Hurricane Harvey, according to Mad World News, and many are doing what they can to help out. One woman was shocked when her efforts to help out were turned down by employees of the Red Cross. Lindsay Scott shared a post on her sister's Facebook explaining what happened when she attempted to deliver 400 burgers to hurricane evacuees. This is Lindsay Scott. I'm astonished at the behavior of the Red Cross husband and wife team at Mid-County Jack Brooks Airport yesterday, who together accosted me and took turns berating me because I was trying to bring 400 warm hamburgers to our hungry evacuees, who, according to them, did not need food because they, quote, already had a sandwich, end quote. Yes, they had one sandwich in 24 hours. They were desperate for a hot meal. The Red Cross proceeded to try to load the warm, ready-to-eat burgers into an ice chest. The pilot who had donated his time, fuel, and money plane and arranged delivery of the burgers was horrified at not being able to serve them. He actually came to volunteer as well. I confess I just stood there with my mouth gaping open, fighting back tears while they told me that I did not know what I was doing and they had not even seen me volunteering. This is not a normal reaction for me, but either exhaustion or pregnancy hormones got the best of me because I simply couldn't find the worlds to fight back. The Red Cross was not there at 6.30 a.m. when we got there to find we had no food to serve the hundreds of evacuees who sat on the bus all night and someone had not eaten in 24 hours. They were not there when the sun came up, when they woke up hungry, angry, tired, scared, and frustrated. They did not see them fighting over donuts that our friends and family answered the call to bring at 7 a.m. They did not see the tears over dehydrated babies while working to arrange the delivery of Pedialyte and formula. They showed up hours later when we already had core coordinated the delivery of food and supplies with our local community members who came out in droves. And the Sky Hope Network, through the wonderful state representatives, Dade Palin, uh, after just a single phone call. And the reason they didn't see me sweating in sunburn is because I spent most of the day on the aviation side of the airport on the tarmac coordinating the landing, unloading, and transport of the supplies the Sky Hope Network was flying in all day, which was no easy feat considering the insane codic state of the Jerry Ware Terminal. I do not care they weren't there. I understand the vast severe damage that ranges from Corpus, Rockport, Houston, all the way to Louisiana. I do, however, care how they treated the people of our community when they arrived. These supplies and donations were made by our local community members and the Sky Hope Network, not the Red Cross, and the Red Cross wanted them all shipped to their warehouse for processing and distribution. Apparently, they don't do local distribution. Say what? 
We need these things here locally now, and while we refuse to turn away anyone who came on foot or by other means evacuee or not, or any other church group or organization asking for supplies, the Red Cross tried to prevent us from sharing our donations contributed by our community for our community and surrounding areas. The kids that are barefoot need shoes now, not two weeks from now. We had more than enough to share. And the way these two representatives of the Red Cross treated local people who were donating their time, many in the wake of having lost everything of their own, and spending countless hours away from their kids and families in the wake of such a tragedy, hurts my heart. I pray this is not representative of the Red Cross organization as a whole. People who donate their money would be horrified. I'm thankful for our local volunteers who continued to fight with them when I could not, and saw that the burgers and supplies were distributed to all of those in need. As our motto was, we turn no one away. One thing I learned from this is, thank God I'm from Texas. Our men may spit, smoke, dip, cuss, and drink from time to time, but when the shit hits the fan, our husbands, brothers, dads, uncles, cousins, sons, and all the other men we know put on their boots, waiters, and get their boats and trucks and go to work. They aren't afraid to get dirty or work long hours in the dark. They aren't afraid of a little water or snakes or dogs that aren't kenneled. They're strong enough to carry you out of your home, <clears throat> and they can deal with being hungry and wet and cold and tired. They deal with this sitting in deer and duck blinds half the year anyway. They have the know-how to save your animals, horses, cows, etc., and they won't quit until the work is done, and our community will answer the call to donate, collect, and distribute supplies and food wherever it is needed. I won't be waiting on the Red Cross. Are you kidding me? And the answer is, I know, no, you're not. This isn't new. This is how the Red Cross is. They set up, and then they run everything. It's our thing, and we have our way, and most of them are too damn stupid to think outside the box. You go from being a volunteer who just wants to help whoever they can help to an employee following a procedure, which is we run everything, so that stuff needs to go to our warehouse so we can figure out where it needs to go while someone's sitting in front of you freaking hungry. If you give money to the Red Cross... You just might as well wad your money up in a ball and set it on fire, okay? Just burn your money, and it, the heat that it generates will do more for somebody than giving it to the freaking Red Cross. The Red Cross, and the way they couldn't find their ass cheeks with both hands in Sandy, and the atrocity they committed with robbing the American people of half a billion dollars that was supposed to go to earthquake victims in Haiti is why citizens assisting citizens exists. And I'm not telling you to give all your money to CAC. Frankly, there's only so much we can do with the size organization we are. What I'm telling you to do with your money in these disasters, be it, you know, Harvey, be it the stuff that's going on with Irma in Florida, or anywhere. Find local charities that are doing the work and support them and do not give money to these thieves. They are thieves. They are thieves and liars. They are liars, thieves, and scam artists scum. And I will say this. I will take any member of the Red Cross that officially wants to defend their position. I will bring them on this show and I will tell them they are liars and thieves and scum directly, and I will let them answer it, and I will listen open-minded, and I think I will end the conversation with goodbye scumbag. You are robbing people by using desperate people to get people who feel and care to donate money to your giant organization so your fat-ass CEO can fly around on a freaking jet. 
If you give money to the Red Cross, you are an idiot. Not if you ever have. If at this point in time, in the world, where they have done enough, and you know now, if you give money to the Red Cross, you are an idiot. They are a sleaze bag organization. They'll take in a billion dollars and spend a million and expect to have you pat them on the ass and tell them they did a good job. I find it reprehensible because I'll tell you what, I wasn't born here in Texas, but I do consider myself a Texan, and there is a fraternity, a sorority, you know, whatever you want to call it, a brotherhood and sisterhood among Texans that's real. And I've lived in a lot of states, and it's more real here than it is anywhere else. And I feel anybody that's a Texan is part of my family. And when you show all the terrible things happen to those people, and you use it to tug on the heartstrings of somebody a thousand miles away, and they send their money in, because they think you're going to help that person on that video, and you don't, you are the lowest form of scum. You are the scum that a maggot shits out. Don't give money to the Red Cross, or as the city councilman says, the Red Lost. Just don't do it. So next up, I wanted to I wanted to tell you about something uh, coming that maybe is a good thing to get my blood pressure back down and be in a little bit better mood. Um, I, I kind of mentioned this. I have a friend. His name's Ben Fitz, and Ben is the guy that built um, the member support brigade back end for me. That runs the member support brigade. Uh, that tells you we go back a ways. And he's also the guy that just did the major upgrade to it. That basically kept everything working and secure and all that good stuff and has solved a lot of my problems uh, with uh, at least you know the, the membership failures that are going to fail from PayPal that are already there are one thing, but with people coming back in and a new way to take payments, uh, you know, fixing that issue. But Ben and I have worked together for, I want to say, maybe, maybe 18 years, 17 years at least. It was definitely before 9-11 that I, I met Ben online. And uh, we worked together, and uh, he's built several different software scripts for me. Uh, he's a great, great web developer, a great programmer, honestly. And uh, we actually had a company that we ran together for a while. We ran it together for a few years, and you know, kind of it ran its course, and we dissolved it, but we made some good money together. And, you know, I'm still working with them, you know, almost two decades. When you work with somebody for two decades, you you have confidence in them or you don't keep working with them for that long. So he came to me recently uh, as we were doing this upgrade, and we were talking about cryptocurrency because it's something he got into pretty big a few years ago. been good to him. He said, well, I'm starting this new company up. What do you call it? I don't know yet. Well, now he knows. It's called Crypto Gulch. It's like, you know, Galt's Gulch type thing. And basically, it's a, a cryptocurrency mining company. And the way that it's going to work, though, is, is a bit unique. He's not the only one doing this, but I, I really like the way he's doing it. And, and above all, I trust him. It's going to work this way. You buy your own equipment, and it ships to his location. They set it up. They configure it. They get it going. They get it mining, and it mines. So you pay for the equipment. And then you get cryptocurrency deposited directly into a wallet from your equipment that he's running. In return for this, they take a fee, and he hasn't kind of really worked out what those fees are yet. He actually thinks they might be a little higher right now on his demo site than he actually plans on them being. But you don't have any ongoing direct expense. You own the equipment, it mines for you, 
you know, Ether or Dash or Bitcoin go into your accounts. That's the type of thing and how it works. If you decide at some point, <clears throat> I just want my equipment and I want to take over, well, you know, they'll charge you a fee to ship it, but they'll ship you your equipment and you're on your own. If you decide I don't want my equipment anymore, then they'll offer it for sale to their customer base, obviously at a discount because it's been run for a while. Or if you say you want to upgrade your equipment as new stuff comes along, then maybe they can sell it off for you and use that toward buying your, your new equipment because it's yours. You own it, which I really like that, that you own it. If you're doing this as a business and you're doing all reporting and stuff the way that you're supposed to according to the government, that means you can depreciate the equipment. He's providing the expertise, the management, the maintenance, and above all, the biggest expense is the energy. There's actually a lot of electricity that goes into running these high-end computers that do you know, mining at any level of actual efficiency. And I put out a post today about this. And if you want to participate, basically your entire relationship will be with Ben. But he's asked me to be a referral partner. So basically I said, well, if you're going to be a referral partner, frankly, I told him, frankly, there's a lot of people that know who you are because of me. I look at him interacting on Facebook, and I see like 20 or 30 people talking to him on a post, and I'm like, that's for my audience, they're for my audience, they're for my audience. I said, look, I need to be part of your launch if I'm going to be a referral partner. He said, no problem. So I have a little email list out right now. I'll put a link in the show notes, too, where you can find it if you can't just find it by scrolling down on the blog. And you fill out this form, and the only thing I would, that's, that's a separate email list from like the MSB or separate from like the show notes list or whatever, and all it'll be is, hey, it's available now. And I just ask if you're going to do business with Ben that you go through my link so I get credit for it uh, because you found out about it from me because it just that makes it worth doing. Um, and frankly, as always, I don't spend money on things that I or I don't ask you to spend money on things I wouldn't spend my money on. When Ben's ready, I'm going to be his first customer. I'm in the first person that once their T tells me the site's actually live and it can be ordered, I'm going to go order you know, a few GPU units myself and get him mining for me before it's even launched uh, because I believe in putting my money where my mouth is. And uh, basically I've set up a deal with him that all my referral fees just basically go into an account to pay for more equipment to do more mining. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing on my referrals 100% reinvestment back uh, into mining because I believe it's a good way to do business, and I believe it's really a great thing to do to have some cryptocurrency that is nobody's business but your own. Because it's not purchased for cash. It's mined out of the, you know, the, the web, basically. And it goes wherever the hell you tell it to go and including to, you know, addresses that are nobody's business, but you're, you know, you and the fence post, me, you and the fence post type thing. And uh, I think that it opens this opportunity for a lot of people. There's no doubt that if you want to take the time and the energy to research, buy the right equipment, figure out how to get it set up and get it running, and put plug it into a closet in your house and run it, that you'll come out ahead. I mean, I want to be completely clear about that. Ben would be too. He ain't going to lie to you. It costs money to get somebody to do something for you. I mean, you'd come out ahead mowing your own lawn instead of paying somebody to do it, for instance. But that doesn't mean they're going to do it for free, or they're going to figure out, well, this is how much you'd spend in gas, so I'm going to charge you that much. They're, they're going to charge you enough to make a living off of it, or they can't afford to do it for you. So I think he's asking for basically a fair profit. And it lets someone who doesn't have time for one more thing in their life get into mining and decide if maybe they want to do some reinvesting of that over time and build up something that's significant for themselves, residual income. I mean, I look at it this way. If it takes you a year or a little over a year to get your money back, but you own the equipment the entire time, there's not many businesses that are that hands-off 
that'll give you that kind of return. You imagine going to somebody and they say, you know, I want you to invest $2,000 in my business. And you say, okay, well, what do I get? Well, I'll pay you a dividend and it'll take you, you know, uh, a year and three months to get back to where you were. But then I'll keep paying you that for as long as the business runs. And you believe they were able to do it. That's a pretty good investment, believe it or not. I mean, that's a great investment. Compare that to the dividends you get on a stock on the Dow. But you see, with that kind of investment, you don't have really, really control over the business itself. With this, you own the equipment. I like the angle he's going with. And the biggest thing above all things with Ben Fitz is I trust him. If I trust somebody with all the passwords to the systems that run my business, you can bet I trust them running some cryptocurrency mining rigs for me, especially when they're depositing the cryptocurrency into my own wallet. So just wanted you guys to know that's coming pretty soon. I don't have an exact start date. I think Ben is trying to do some things to uh, secure some space uh, for all of the equipment because just on some preliminaries, it looks like it's going to be a pretty popular service. And he doesn't want to overcommit or underdeliver or anything like that. And he wants to make sure that you know it's not it's something with all this equipment will actually be cooled sufficiently and things like that. So he's taking some time. Basically, he's creating his own co-location facility, uh, if you're familiar with that term. And it'll be available soon. But again, all you do is fill out the form, and I will email you when you can uh, set up your accounts with Crypto Gulch. What I want to finish up with today is Hurricane Irma, or the big fizzle in some ways. I, don't, I, I hesitate to say that, though, and I'll tell you why. The only reason we look at what happened with Hurricane Irma and go, eh, it wasn't that bad, is because of how bad they told us it was going to be. Because it's pretty bad. There's massive flooding in Jacksonville today. It's not he Harvey Houston flooding, but nobody ever expected that. Um, let's talk about why it happened the way that it did and why they thought it was going to be so bad. So the original forecast was in the models early on were looking like it was going to make the, that, that big northern turn earlier than it did. And it was going to be a direct hit on Miami, Florida, with a population like 2.2 million people, with a full, well-formed eye. And the eye wall on the north side of a hurricane is strong, but it's that back wall that's even stronger. And it was going to go in there and do all kinds of terrible things. And we won't get into it. It's just, it was going to be bad. It was going to strafe right up through Fort Lauderdale and, and then go back out to sea and then slam into, like, the Savannah, Georgia area. If it had done that, you would have got all the apocalyptic predictions that the Weather Channel gave you and Fox News gave you, et cetera. Well, then the models changed, and it looked like it was going to turn north and basically go straight up and hit the Fort Myers, Florida area, which is where Sanibel Island is and where I thought I was going on vacation. And the understanding with that was it wasn't going to hit Cuba. It was probably not really going to do much other than go just, just straight over Key West, which wouldn't really do anything to disrupt it. And it was going to make that direct hit into the Fort Myers area. If it had done that, with all that warm water in between, well, then it would have maintained that full eye wall all the way around. That nice circular eye that you saw for three weeks coming across the Atlantic would have stayed together. And, and what happened was, this did happen, the water got blown out of the bays. Tampa Bay was dry. Um, the, the, okay, the uh, Pine Island Sound was dry in the Fort Myers area. Like, you could walk on it. Because those... Winds is that eyes rotating around were coming 
and blowing out to sea. And then when that storm passes, you go through the eye, and then the backside of the eyeball is so strong, the winds come the opposite direction and drag the ocean back in. So you've got, first of all, the water been piled up out there, and now you've got this strong, forceful wind bringing it back in, coinciding with some high tide schedules. So they were forecasting in the Fort Myers area 15 feet of storm surge. 15 feet of storm surge, if you stand outside of a two-story house and look up at the top of the window on the second floor, that's about 15 feet. I believe Sanibel Island, Captiva Island, things like that, have like a maximum rise above the shoreline of about 10 feet. So you're talking about the whole island being under a minimum of 5 feet of water with 15 foot of storm surge. Hence, we canceled our reservation, which apparently now was a mistake, but we're going to go to something else cool, so it'll be fine. And uh, <clears throat> that's what they expected to happen. Well, what happened? Why did that all change? Irma raked the coastline of Cuba for about 90 miles. It was weak in the storm, and it caused what's called an eye reformation. And then it took a turn north before it was expected, which was bad news for like Key Largo and Shark Key and places like that. And it hit landfall in Florida on a glancing blow and then crossed over at a place called Marco Island, fairly significantly south, where it did a lot of damage. But being a really narrow island, it didn't stay there very long. And, and as it got further north, that backside of the eyewall collapsed. So it was still an extremely powerful storm with, with gusts over 130 miles an hour. But once that eyewall passed, it was gone, and those strong winds changing direction didn't come, and all that storm surge didn't come. However, as it was doing all this, as is always the case with hurricanes, that east, eastern side... Those incredibly powerful storms caused a lot of flooding in places like Miami. In many ways, Miami had more damage due to water than places where the center of the hurricane hit hundreds of miles away. And today, you got the St. John's River rising from all the rain and the inflow air and flooding places like Jacksonville, Florida, and moving flooding into places like Georgia and, and even some of the Carolinas. And yet the damn thing's turning toward Birmingham. This is one of the most massive hurricanes of all time. And, and I think there's a lot of people right now kind of grumpy that it didn't mess everything up worse. Because you were promised it would. Let me tell you what you should be saying right now. Thank God. As bad as it was, we got lucky. And those of you that are kind of like, well, you know, we're lied to, blah, 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 blah. You know, the fact that somebody's house isn't underwater is a good thing. And I don't think the media really hyped this for the purpose of hype. I believe they hyped it because they believed it was going to do the things they said it was going to do. And it did a lot of them. And if anybody thinks it wasn't that bad of a storm, talk to somebody you know that went through it in the Leeward Islands where some of those islands are like 90% uninhabitable at this point. It, it was an incredibly strong, strong storm that just happened to do things that weakened it. And I'm, somebody said that uh, they did a post on Facebook that said, Irma, you're drunk. And I said, she looks like a mean drunk. And uh, if Irma's a drunk, I think Jose is a special person. Hurricane Jose, he's going in a circle. 
out there in the ocean. He's a little bit lost, lost Jose out there. Maybe he's drunk, too, on Cuervo. I don't know. Um, but hopefully that storm will not make U.S. landfall. There's a good chance now that thing will go out up into the northern Atlantic like many hurricanes do this time of year in that area, but it still has potential to be a problem. And it's like a Category 3 or 4 hurricane in its own right right now. Um, been a rough year. So that's what happened. What, what I kind of wanted to finish up with today is what we should learn from this. There's a lot of people that would say, well, you know, all these people evacuated in Miami, and, you know, they didn't really have to, and they would have been better off staying put. See, that's why most people are broke in America, because that's how they handle their stock investing. Well, I should have this or I should have that. No, what you should do is the best you can with the information you have at the time, whether it's with bugging out or whether it's with whether or not to hold a stock or sell a stock or buy a stock. We, we, we need to broaden this thinking to all aspects of our lives. If there's a 50% chance that if you stay somewhere, you can end up dead with your house blown on top of you or stuck up on top of your roof waiting for some guy in a bass boat to come pick you up, starving and hungry and thirsty and unable to get anywhere and at risk of your life, and there's a 50% chance that that can happen, well, what that means is there's a 50% chance that it won't. Well, the 50% that it won't happen is not what we make the decision on. We, we make it on the 50% chance that it, that it could happen. And if we leave and we go somewhere where we know we're going to be safe, there's a 100% chance that it's not going to happen. And I like those odds better. And I think that's the big takeaway we need to have from these two storms so far this year. Because this is my fear. People reacted so strongly to Irma because of Harvey. And there was no comparison between the two storms. I told you guys last week, these are entirely different types of events. Harvey was going to do exactly what it did. There was no question. I might have been screaming, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, before the authorities. But, I mean, the people on the, on the Weather Channel and all, they knew it was going to happen. I didn't hear them really get to it until like a day later, but it was still well before it happened. All I did was I looked at the projected storm track. I saw it head, you know, in somewhere around Aransas Passes or Rockport or wherever where it did with a high confidence. Like all the models were going, it's going right here. I saw it head up, you know, kind of towards San Antonio and kind of just trickle around there and get lost like a drunk. I think Harvey was the drunk hurricane. And then just slowly meander over to Houston, hang out there for a few days. And slowly meander over to Louisiana, hang out there for a few days, and then turn north and actually act like a normal tropical storm or hurricane and move with some some you know sense of speed and purpose. And I realized that Houston, being east of the landfall, that's in these storms. That's always where the heavy rains and the worst winds are. It's always the east. As far as now the eye, it's that northeastern eye wall. Okay, that's 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 like the worst on the leading edge, and it's the it's the usually it's the southwestern eye wall on the back wall that's the most powerful part of the eye as it comes back around. You know, as you get through that eye experience, and uh, that that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the outer bands. You look at all these storms, especially as soon as they make landfall and they begin to degrade, you see this huge billowing up of the east and northeast side of the storm. And the backside, this is exactly what happened with Irma. It just dies. 
Well, no one talked about that with Harvey, but that's what happened. But that meant when it was hanging out, the eye, what was left of it, you know, a hundred miles west of Houston, that all the rain was in Houston. And that's exactly what, if you look at Irma on a map right now, it looks like Harvey, except it's moving. Same thing, that back uh, southwest side collapses. It just collapses once that storm starts to fall apart. And it turns into a major, all that moisture, it's not gone. Right? It, it didn't go away. It got absorbed by that other side. It sucks it all over. All the energy and all the moisture gets sucked over there. And pff, down it comes. And it's when those storms slow down that you get the worst flooding. So both of these storms were actually very, did exactly what you would expect that they would do. The only thing that, that you know helped out was that Irma grabbed onto a piece of Cuba on the way up and slowed it down, and it hit that landfall with that, that angle in the Marco Island area, and by the time it got up into the more populated parts of Florida, had significantly weakened that back wall collapsed. So th my fear now is, well, they said for three weeks it was going to be the apocalypse, and now there's one coming here. And that's what they always say, because that's what people did with Harvey. We've seen hurricanes before. It's just a rain event. It's not going to be that strong. Where I live, it doesn't flood. And next thing you know, the Cajun Navy's pulling you off your roof. So the lesson here is, just because this one wasn't as bad as expected doesn't mean that the next one might not be worse. And the bigger thing we need to think about when we're dealing with these large-scale events, be they hurricanes, ice storms, whatever, It doesn't matter how many people, you know, are killed or put in serious situations or injured. It just matters, you know, when it comes right down to it, whether or not you are. Because they can say, well, we expected, you know, thousands of people to be hurt and flooded. and There's only ten. Well, that ain't that bad. Well, what if you're number seven? Well, you got a problem, don't you? So we the, the lesson here is to always take this stuff seriously and accept that, yes, the media is going to hype. Because there was definitely some media hype on it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I was watching these guys standing out in the storm, and you could tell they had carefully selected their backdrop so that it looked as bad as possible. Well, that's what they do. And to be fair, it's what I would do if I was out there covering it. It's like there's a place over here with some trees blown down and water, standing water blowing around and all. And then there's this place over here where it doesn't look like nothing happened. Well, hell, it's set up over there. It's what people want to see. But they definitely, I saw the one guy, Chris something, I think, Chris Components or something, I don't know. Dan, maybe it was Dan, I don't know. The guy was on, he was on uh, Weather Channel live as it moved into the Fort Myers area. And you can't blame him as a meteorologist to stand through the wall of a hurricane and then see the eye. The blue sky above you. It was is is a dream for these guys. I mean, it's like you know the, the her uh, what do you call it, tornado chasers and stuff. All have certain things that they want, like on their bucket list. And this guy, man, he was set up and he stood through. I felt bad for him. He stood through that eye wall with gusts up to 142 miles an hour, sustained winds to 95 in his little hurricane suit. While his cameraman sat in a van, and you could see the window of the van constantly wiping the lens off. And he stood out there. He got busted in the balls at some point. He was like, all of a sudden you hear him go, oh, that hurt. And they like left him for a little bit. And he's white. And there's some doctor, Ph.D. doctor chick telling him, well, I think you're going to be all right. It's going to be just a few more minutes, and you're going to be in the eye, and you're going to get a break, a well-deserved break. 
It's like, it'll be 15 minutes, like 20 minutes later. She's now it'll be about 20 minutes. <laughs> He's waiting for the eye. The storm jogged a little bit east. He eventually got a break, but he wasn't in the eye anymore. And he knew it. And you saw him, and he was like, damn. Damn, we're so close. And like five minutes later, he was actually convincing himself that even though the backside fell apart, he was in the eye. It was just a little bit different. Because he was dreaming of being in the So there was some hype, and there was some, there was some real, I mean, the guy got something hit him. I, I, th I think it was the nuts. If it wasn't the nuts, it was the gut. But he was sitting there fighting that wind and just all some, oh. And so, I mean, you, you, you know, these folks that cover this stuff, they're going to hype it some. But in the end, I think like Governor Rick Scott did exactly what he was supposed to do. And I'd rather overreact rather than underreact. Again, though, the danger is going to be the next one, the next major disaster. It might not even be a hurricane. People saying, oh, but you remember what they said with Irma. And it wasn't that bad. And that's normalcy bias. Normalcy bias is a video I saw today of a guy walking through some part of Miami with a leaf blower trying to blow the flooded water off of the pavement. It's not, it's not how water works, dude. It's just not how water works. But uh, stay vigilant, stay prepared, and, and be ready to leave if you have to. Oh, with that, if you guys want to support my show, one of the ways you can do it completely painlessly is to do online shopping via a simple little website URL called tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Easy to remember, tspaz.com. You go there, you can see my Amazon reviews. You can get over there and see the Amazon deals of the day and all that stuff. And as long as you shop by going to tspaz.com and clicking a link before you buy anything, no matter what you buy, you help support the survival podcast and the work that we do. And that is about as painless as it can be because you're probably going to buy something this week online anyway uh, from the big old A. So consider doing it through the survivalpodcast.com by going to tspaz.com first. Okay, so uh, item of the day is a, an old favorite and one I think is a great time to be bringing back around. It is the Shard Carry 9.5 Quart Smart Pressure Canner and Cooker, the item of the day. Every time I bring this product up, I get, it's a pressure cooker. It's not a pressure canner. And you're telling people they can pressure can it, and they're going to can me, and they're going to die. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. This thing is awesome, and it is safe for pressure canning, especially if you follow the instructions that come with it. I actually believe it is safer than an old-school pressure canner because you're less likely to hurt yourself with it, and you're less likely to screw up because it's a computer, and if it's everything's not right, it won't start the cycle. It's a very, very cool tool, and it makes pressure canning easy. It'll do four quarts at a time. Now, somebody wrote me from Canada and said their quart jars up there are like a little bit different dimensions, and they don't fit. They don't fit because they're a little bit fatter, so you can only fit three in or something like that. So be aware of that if you're from Canada. I don't know. Drive south to the border to get your jars or something. I don't know what kind of metric-ass crap you got going on up there. And stick to the good old actual quart sizes, but... Uh, Uh, this is this is the tool I would recommend to get into canning with. And uh, you can learn all about it at tspaz.com. Just click the link to see our most current reviews. And again, as long as you do your uh, shopping on tspaz.com when you're going to shop online, you help support Survival Podcast, the work we do, no matter what the heck you buy. And that's about a painless way to support a show you spend a couple hours a day listening to. Next up, let's take a look at our song of the day today. Now, 
I went off script from John Adam today. I thought about today being September 11, and I, I thought there's only one song that I could play today and, and, and just really wanted to play this song for you today. It came out, I think, the week after 9-11. It wasn't very long. It was maybe a few days, and it's by Alan Jackson, and it's called Where Were You? And I'll tell you what I like about this song. Most of the other songs that seem to have been ex uh, inspired by 9-11 and its aftermath seem very much, especially country, very much, you know, a war chant. You know, you have to have a certain bent to, to want to listen to that song. Where I found this song to actually be completely universal. I think you can be a complete anti-war peaceneck, you know, type, or you can be very hawkish, or you can be, you know, rational and logical somewhere in the middle making decisions based on the actual facts. You can be any of those things. And I think what this song does for us is it takes us all back. That's those of us that can take back. You know, when I did my rant on 9-11 earlier, and that guy making that stupid comment, you know, it happened, grow up, get over it, and get a job. My point there when I was talking about soldiers is we have soldiers right now that are 21, 22 years old. They were alive when it happened, but they don't remember it. They grew up. They're out fighting these wars because of this moment. And this song will never mean to them what it will mean to most of you that were here when it happened. On September 11, 2001, I left my house. I drove south out of Northampton, Pennsylvania, which is just north of Allentown, Pennsylvania. and drove down Turnpike 476, Philadelphia, went to Philadelphia International Airport. Parked my car. I was going to be gone for a four-day trip. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, come back Thursday afternoon. Parked my car. I'd kissed my wife goodbye that morning. She didn't get out of bed. It was so early. I got on a plane. Flew across the state of Pennsylvania from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. Not a very far flight. I had a Bloody Mary that morning. Because of my flight you know, status and so many miles and all, I'd gotten upgraded to first class. No rental car to worry about. I walked down to the baggage claim, expecting to wait a while, and baggage claim turned on immediately. First bag out was mine. I grabbed it, grabbed my cell phone, called my sales rep, which is why I didn't have any rental car to worry about. Said, hey, Matt, you out there? He says, yeah, I'm waiting for you. I walked out the door. He was right there like it was a limo service. Got out, opened the back of the van. I threw my suitcase in jumped in with him. He had Howard Stern on, and I used to actually listen to Howard Stern back then, especially if that's what your sales rep wanted to listen to. We pulled out of Pittsburgh International Airport. We heard them talking about a plane that hit the World Trade Center. And I hate to admit it now, but we made a joke. We figured some idiot had gotten drunk in his Cessna and crashed it into a building, because what the hell else could have happened? And then, then the announcement came the second plane had hit a second building. And then a third plane had hit the Pentagon. And I know a lot more about what I believe about what happened that day, today, than I did then. But I knew what it meant when Matt 
my, my sales rep, Matt, turned to me and said, do you know what this means? I said, yeah, I know what it means. We're at war. We decided to just call everybody that we had appointments with that day and cancel them because we knew nobody would want to see us. And, of course, everybody was happy to cancel, and I couldn't check into my hotel just yet, so we went and found like a you know, like a restaurant and bar. That's everywhere in Pittsburgh, somewhere with a TV. Of course, that's what everybody was looking at. And I tried to call my wife a couple times, but the cell networks were down, and I didn't try too hard because... I knew there were people that needed to make those calls more than I do. I knew she had my flight number, and she knew I'd be okay. We walked into there, and just as we walked into the place, that first building came down on the TV. And I remember everybody gasping. And it was about that time, you know, being all, kind of all out of sorts, that I found out about the plane gone down in Shanksville, which is just outside of Pittsburgh. I just really didn't know what was going on. You know, we were discombobulated, honestly, like everybody else. But somebody said something about that, and then they were talking about it on the TV. And I said, oh, my God, my son, they're going to tell the kids in school. Because when I was in school and something like this happened, they rolled televisions into the school. When when I was in school and the, the space shuttle blew up, we were at a recess, and we weren't that far north. When I was living in Florida then, we saw it. But they rolled the TVs in so that we could see what was going on. And school stopped for the day. And I thought that's how it still was. So I called my, called and called and called until I got through to my wife. And I said, you need to call the school and you need to make sure that they tell Matthew that I'm okay. She called me back later and said, when they got through to, to them, they said they weren't going to tell the kids anything about it and they were absolutely rude to her. On any other day, I think I would have got a hold of a car, driven home, and punched somebody in the face. But on that day, I just didn't know what to think. By now, I'd gotten my hotel room. I didn't know what I was going to do. My return flight was in four days, and they had already said they were going to be grounding flights. Stuck. That night, I listened to my wife cry because she was afraid, and she's so empathetic. All she could think of was the other families and the people suffering on that day. That's all she could think of. Other people. And I listened to my son ask me, with fear in his voice, if a war could come here. And I thought, this isn't where I should be right now. I should be home with them. It was two days later that our travel coordinator from our company was able to get work a deal with Hertz, and they said, yeah, you can have a one-way rental car. And I was able to drive from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia and get my car, go home, and finally be with my family. And I ended up working for that company. It was right at the time that Fluke had bought Microtest, who I'd gone to work for. I worked for that company for another two and a half years. But it was at the point right there that I'd made a decision that my life wasn't going to be on the road anymore. It wasn't about being afraid that something would happen to me. It was about being afraid that something would happen again and I wouldn't be there for them. That's where I was on that day when the world stopped turning. Listen to this song and tell me in the comments section today, where were you? With that, 
This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Were you in the yard with your wife and children or working on some stage in L.A.? Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout out in anger and fear for your neighbor? Or did you just sit down and cry? Did you weep for the children who lost their dear loved ones? Pray for the ones who don't know. Did you rejoice for the people who walked from the rubble and sob for the ones left below? Did you burst out with pride? red, white, and blue, and the heroes who died just doing what they do. Did you look up to heaven for some kind of answer and look at yourself and what really matters? I'm just a singer of simple songs. I'm not a real political man. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you. The difference in Iraq and Iran But I know Jesus and I talk to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love Where were you when the world stopped turning On that September day Teaching a class full of innocent children Or driving down some cold interstate Did you feel guilty cause you're a survivor? In a crowded room did you feel alone? Did you call up your mother and tell her you loved her? Did you dust off that Bible at home? Did you open your eyes and hope it never happened? Close your eyes and not go to sleep. Did you notice the sunset the first time in ages and speak to some stranger on the street? Did you lay down at night and think of tomorrow? Go out and buy you a gun. Did you turn off that violent old movie you're watching? Turn on I Love Lucy reruns Did you go to a church and hold hands with some strangers Stand in line and give your own blood Did you just stay home and cling tight to your family Thank God you had somebody to love I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran. But I know Jesus and I talk to God, and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us, and the greatest is love. 
I'm just a singer of simple songs. I'm not a real political man. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in our rock and our red. But I know Jesus and I talk to God, and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us. And the greatest is love. And the greatest is love. And the greatest is love. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day?